We are in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9 today as we continue to look at not just the advent of Jesus Christ, but his second advent and what that means to us, our hope in Christ. I, this is one of those stories that if I ever write a book about my experiences as a pastor, this will definitely be in it. So a couple of years ago, there was a, a woman who came to our church for the first time, and I think the last time, I don't think I've seen her since, um, but she came because she'd been watching us online and she wanted to check us out in person. And so one of our church members brought her to me, this is before the service even started, brought her to me, very tall lady. She came up to me and, and the lady said, uh, this woman has been watching us online and she wanted to meet the pastor. And I said, hi, ma'am, my name is Jeff Berger. And I shook her hand and she looked down at me and she said, and I quote, you look taller on television. <laughs> and I said, I'm really sorry about that. Um, you know, in, in a week, we'll be opening presents. Some of those won't be the right size either. So get used to disappointment. Uh, you know, speaking of disappointment, you may remember, some of you may not, but back in 2016, there was a, a Christian who made a lot of waves, who went viral, as they say today. Uh, he put a video online uh, because of his disappointment about a decision that was made. Uh, Starbucks, as you probably know for years, put out these special Christmas cups. At Christmas time, they would have uh, s snowflakes and, and stars, of, uh, stars of David and, and uh, Christmas trees and all kinds of Christmas-related symbols on them. But this particular year, 2016, their Christmas cups were just plain red. And so he posted a, a video that went viral that said, this is one more example of how we as Christians are persecuted in this country. Which, okay, first of all, there's really nothing Christian about snowflakes and candy canes and Christmas trees and reindeers. Secondly, does that really qualify as persecution? I mean, someday this guy's going to be standing in front of Jesus on Judgment Day. And the whole church is going to be gathered. And then that crowd will be people like Stephen, who was stoned to death, and Peter, who, according to church tradition, was crucified upside down, and Polycarp, who was burned alive for his faith, Bonhoeffer, who was hanged by the Nazis for resisting them, Jim Elliot, who went to share the gospel with a foreign tribe and was speared to death by the very people he went to minister to, and all the hundreds, thousands of other people who've given their lives for the cause, including people in our own century. And he'll stand there looking at Jesus with the scars on his hands and his feet and his forehead. Do you really think he's going to say, well, you think you had it bad. I had to drink overpriced coffee in a cup with no snowflakes and, and candy canes. I don't think so. And yet there are real reasons to be discouraged, real things to be concerned about. We're living in an exceptionally violent time with, with several major wars occurring on our planet at the same time. We're living in a country that's increasingly divided, where nothing we seem to do matters, or nothing we, seem, or nothing we do seems to work. For instance, uh, how long did Christians pray that the Roe versus Wade ruling would be overturned and so, so states could, could uh, make abortion illegal? And yet, since that happened, the abortion rate has actually risen. Suicide rates are on the rise as well as young people struggle with anxiety, with depression, with loneliness. Uh, people we know who are older struggle with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's, and, and we know that if we find cures for those, and I'm praying for that, but some other disease will take its place. That's the world we live in. Families struggle. One of my unique burdens and privileges as a pastor is I know many, not all, but many of the struggles in our church, and so I'm aware that every family 
including that family, you look at across the auditorium right now and you go, okay, they've got it all together. Look at them. Actually, they're struggling too. Every family I know is struggling in some way. They're fighting some battle. They're facing some source of stress. So what can we do? Where is our hope? See, our hope is in this. A king is coming. 2,000 years ago, he came into this world in a manger. He came, the, the child of unborn par- unmarried parents, the, the, the son of a, a poor carpenter in a backward part of the world. He came to give his life to rescue us. He's coming back as a conquering king. And so at Christmas, we remember his advent, but we also look forward to his second advent. When all things are made right, when all sad things become untrue, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are no exceptions, every single one. So what is it going to be like when that happens? Isaiah 11 is about that. And Isaiah 11 tells us what life will be like when the king takes his throne and redeems this world. So this is going to be a very encouraging message for many of us, but it's also going to be challenging because we're also going to talk about if we really believe what the Bible says, then that should change the way we live in some very specific ways. Because the truth is, and this is something that always shocks people, the hope of Christianity is not to die and be with Jesus. It is true that a Christian, someone who knows Jesus, the moment we die, we're in his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But never, ever, anywhere in Scripture does Jesus or any of the apostles say, hey, come and follow me, and then when you die, you can be with me forever. That's not what the hope is. That's a consolation, but something better is coming. Nor is the hope of Christianity to be raptured out of this world. Never anywhere in the New Testament do the apostles or Jesus or anybody else say, man, I can't wait to get out of this place. Instead, the hope is that the king is returning and he's going to redeem this world and we will live here in a redeemed, perfect new earth in resurrected bodies. Now, what will that be like? Isaiah 11 gives us a little brief glimpse. Verse 6 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Twenty years ago, I got it in my head that I needed some more training as a pastor, and I signed up for the doctoral program, uh, the doctor of ministry program at a a seminary a few hours away. And uh, what that meant was I didn't have to move, uproot my family. I continued to pastor my church and and be there for my family. But uh, at the beginning of every semester, the way it worked was I would get a syllabus, and it would say, buy these books, read these books, write these papers, And then at the end of the semester, we're going to gather together for three or four days. We're going to talk. We're going to present these papers. And that's when you'll you'll get your grade. So every semester I did this. Well, this one particular semester during that program, the subject I was studying was called eschatology, which is a fancy word for the study of end times, the last things, the end of the present age and the beginning of the next. Meanwhile, very significantly, 
my grandmother, my mom's mom, was dying of cancer. I was very close to my grandma. I, I, had, I was fortunate in that all four of my grandparents lived into my 30s. But my, my mom's mom, I had spent a lot of time with her as a child. And so this was significant. And I was away at class and I was learning about the return of Jesus and what that's going to be like and what the world to come will be like. And I got a phone call from my mom and said, you need to get home because grandma doesn't have long. So I had to leave the seminar behind and the professor gave me permission. And I called Carrie, who was at our house in the Houston area. And I said, hey, can you meet me? You and the kids meet me at mom's house. We just need to be with her because grandma's dying. And so uh, they drove there. I got out of class. I came. I made, made it there late at night. Both the kids were already in bed. Will was a little baby. Kaylee was six years old. And so you know how you do, those of you who are parents, when, you're, when your kids are little, you just want to see them, even if they can't acknowledge you. You go, you sneak into their bedroom, and you put your hand on their forehead, because they're really sweet when they sleep, right? So I did that and discovered Kaylee was still awake. She said, Dad, how was your class? And I said, it was good. And she said, well, what was it about? And I said, well, it's about, it's about what happens when Jesus returns. And she said, well, what will that be like? I said, well, honey, it's, it's going to be really, really good because, you know, we won't have to say goodbye to people like Grandma that we love because nobody will get sick and nobody will die ever again. And, and people will be nice to each other. There won't be any any ugliness anymore. Even the animals will be nice. Even the animals we're afraid of now will be nice. I mean, so nice you and I could go up and pet a lion. And Kaylee, when she was little, had these big brown eyes. And I remember even though the lights were off and it was dark, I could see those little eyes just glowing, gleaming at me. And she looked up at me and she said, oh, please, can it be that way now? Please, can it be that way now? And that really got my heart. Because I know that we as adults, we like to say, well, it's not the end of the world. You ever, you ever say that, that, that sentence? Man, I had a flat tire today and it was a terrible day, but it's not the end of the world. As if the end of the world is the worst possible thing. We compare everything to that. And yet, here's this six-year-old, and she hears about the end of the world, and her first thought is, yes, please. Yes, let's, let's do that. Let's make that happen. Talk about a little child shall lead you. So here's what I want you to understand. What my daughter experienced that night is what the Bible calls hope. Hope is when you don't just read about the promises of Scripture and say, yeah, that sounds good. At least I know there's something good coming. Hope is when that is what you put your heart toward. That's what you daydream about. Hope is, what, is, what you, is when you say, I'm holding on to this. And if you hope in anything other than the return of Jesus, you're going to be disappointed. You can hope that your team wins the championship. They probably won't. But even if they do, guess what? Next year, they probably won't. You can hope that your kids are going to graduate uh, uh, with valedictorian and go to some great college and make lots of money so they can put you in a nice nursing home 50 years from now. Chances are it won't happen, and even if it does, it won't be enough. But if you hope in the return of Jesus, you will not be disappointed. See, this is reality. This is not fantasy. In fact, the world we're in now is what is kind of a fantasy because it's so fleeting, 
Putting our hope in things of this world is sort of like saying, well, I've got an all-expenses-paid trip to Hawaii, but I'm going to spend all my money at the airport. Because what you buy at the airport gets left behind. See, we're in the airport now. Let's put our hope in the world to come. Let's lay up treasure in heaven. Now, again, this isn't fantasy. Why? Because, as the scriptures say, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. What does that mean, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord? What it means is not just that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, not just humans, but every atom, every cell, every every, uh, molecule of creation will all of a sudden be exactly what it was meant to be. See, it's ironic. When we see a natural disaster... We, we're watching the news and we see that a tornado came and wiped out half a town. We say, oh, you know, it's an act of God. The irony is Genesis 3 says the opposite, that those things don't exist until in Genesis 3, humans bring sin into the world. No natural disaster, no war, no death, no pain. We brought it into the world. That's an act of man. That's an act of humanity. So someday all of that's going to be gone. Someday all that sin is going to be erased and God's kingdom will be here and everything will express the glory of God. And it's not just that the bad things stop. It's not just that everything sad comes untrue. There are good things. All of creation will shine the glory of God and speak of how great he is. So think about this. If you've ever said, you know, I'm glad there's heaven because it's better than the alternative, but it sounds kind of boring to me. You're reading about the wrong heaven. Okay, this is not a place where we sit on clouds with with these little cute doughy wings on our backs and with halos and and harps. This This is a real world that speaks of God's glory. And you're forgetting that everything you love about this world, God made. So when you're standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon and you're, you're looking at this thing that takes your breath away or you stare up at the stars and there are millions and millions of them or, or you're driving through the mountains or you're sitting at the beach while the, while the seagulls are calling and the sun is setting and the, the sky is turning red and then yellow and then purple. When, when, you, when you eat a great meal, the best food you've ever had, when you listen to the most beautiful music you've ever heard, when you gather with your friends and someone says or does something hilarious and everybody laughs until they cry, Who made that? It wasn't the devil. It wasn't one of us. It wasn't Elon Musk. It wasn't Bill Gates. It wasn't anybody on earth. It was God. That's the kind of joy you experience in a sin-polluted world. That's God operating with one hand tied behind his back, so to speak. What do you think he can offer you when we're in a world where nothing separates us from him? where there is no sin dividing us from him. What do you think enjoyment will be like when we're in his presence all the time? And think about the people we'll meet. Think about uh, meeting people from all different periods of history, different cultures, different, different ways of looking at the world, hearing their stories. And even if you're an introvert, just understand, you're gonna connect with so many different people and you're gonna find you and I have the most important things in common. It's going to be enjoyable. It's going to be glorious. Jesus, when he talked about the world to come, he didn't compare it to school. He didn't compare it to work. He didn't even compare it to church. And it's okay for you to say amen, all right? He compared it to a party. He said it's going to be like a wedding feast. A wedding, by the way, where he pays the bill. 
But the best part will be, he will be there. This is what's the hardest for us to understand, but it helps me to understand that, that God is the source of all good things. So when we enjoy something good, it's like we're getting secondhand how good God is, but we'll go straight to the source in heaven. The, the ancient theologians called it the beatific vision, which is this idea that in heaven, we won't really care about the things we cared about down here on earth. You know, right now we think about heaven and we're like, well, will my dog or my cat be there? Will I be able to play golf? Will I be able to shoot a deer? Will I be able to eat steak? Will I be able to eat ice cream without it going to my hips? And we'll get there and we'll realize, you know, none of that really matters. I, all the answers will be satisfactory to us, but what really counts is that we'll be with him. And we'll realize he's the best thing of all. That's our hope. Now, what does that mean for us? See, some of you are younger than me. And you've got the world ahead of you, your lives ahead of you. And there's this pressure that you feel that says, I've got to get it. I've got to get what's mine while I can. Pretty soon, I'm going to be old. I'm going to be like, you know, 40 or something. And uh, then it's all over and it's all downhill from there. So I need to just, I need to grasp all the fun, all the joy, all the, all the pleasure, all the, all, the, all the experiences that this world offers. I need to become successful. I need to make a million bucks before I'm 22 and if you believe the promises of Scripture, the older you get, it's not that life gets worse. The older you get, the closer you get to when life really begins. And some of you are older than me, and right now you're very worried about the state of the world, and you're worried about what happens if my retirement dries up, and what happens if my body fails, and what happens if my grandchildren go off the rails, and what happens. And if you believe the promises of Scripture, you know that God's going to take care of it all. That Anything we sacrifice for him, anything we lose down here is repaid hundredfold there. And I want you to think about what that meant to the first believers. Because see, they were persecuted. They experienced real persecution, not just Starbucks cups and, and, and people making fun of them on TV and the internet. They experienced real persecution. And yet they didn't riot. They didn't protest. They just loved. They just lived faithfully. They just, they just loved their neighbor as themselves, even their neighbors who weren't nice to them. And when the, when the epidemics would sweep through the big cities of the ancient world, and nobody knew what caused disease back then, so the only thing they knew to do is the pagans would all just leave. This is where the sickness is, so I'm going to go to the hills. They'd leave their own family members dying in their beds, and the Christians were the only ones who stayed. Not to loot the homes of their neighbors, but to go door-to-door -door ministering to their neighbors. And some of them actually got sick and died, but it was worth it because they knew this life isn't all there is. If I die young, that's not the end of me. And yet at the same time, and yet at the same time, it's not as though they had a death wish. They weren't just saying, Lord, get me out of this horrible world. Kill me now so I can be with you. No, they knew that life was precious and every opportunity you had to do good was something you'd be glad for in eternity. They truly laid up treasure in heaven. They invested in eternity. There's a sociologist named Rodney Stark, died a couple of years ago. He was not a Christian and yet, ironically, his life's work was to figure out, this is what he was obsessed with, why did Christianity spread so fast when it first began? 
Because one of the things he noted was that you can look at every religion on earth and you can see logically how it spread. So most religions either spread through biology or military conquest. Biology meaning like Judaism, uh, as the Jews grew, as, they, as, they, as their population grew, Judaism grew. As, as the Chinese grew, uh, Buddhism spread. As, as the Indian people, uh, as India grew in population, Hinduism spread. Then on the other hand, there were religions that spread through military conquest. So Rome, for instance, the Roman gods were worshiped all over the world. Why? Because the Roman empire kept conquering new countries. Uh, hundreds of years later, the Islamic empire did the same thing. Everywhere they spread, they spread Islam with them because if Islam conquers you, you become a Muslim, otherwise life is hard. Uh, but Christianity, at least in its first 300 years, wasn't like that at all. Christianity was powerless. It was the minority, population-wise. So Rodney Stark, he's written all these different books, and you can read them. They're written for a popular audience. You can look him up uh, and read his work. His conclusion was, the only explanation is radically courageous love. The gospel spread because the world said, why do these people love us like this? After all the ways we've treated them, why do they treat us this way? And the reason why is because they had hope. See, Stark doesn't talk about this because he himself wasn't a Christian. All he knew was somehow these Christians were able to give themselves away, and that's what spread the gospel. He doesn't know why they were able to do that. The reason why they were able to do it is because they knew this world isn't all there is. They could say, you know, I, I, can, I can die young and that's okay because there's something else. I can live to be 95 and be mistreated every single day of my life and that's okay because Jesus is going to make it up to me. I can love my neighbor because when I do, I'm laying up treasure in heaven. Tim Keller says that in the ancient world, the Romans were stingy with their money and generous with their bodies. They're stingy with their money because they said, hey, I've got, to, I've got to keep what's mine. They were generous with their bodies because they said, I've got to get pleasure. I've got to go and, and get pleasure at any cost. I've got to be with as many people as possible uh, because that's the way I can have fun and enjoyment. But the Christians were the opposite. They were generous with their money and stingy with their bodies. Generous with their money because they knew I can't outgive God. Stingy with their bodies because they knew, I'm not going to break God's commands regarding sexuality because there's something better coming. And I don't want to cheat myself of that better thing. That's what it means to live in hope. And here's the part of the message you're not going to enjoy. Imagine that we actually began to live that way too. Imagine American Christians started living like first century Christians where we said, I'm actually going to believe what the Bible says about eternity. I'm not going to be governed by fear. I'm not going to be governed by anger. I'm going to be governed by hope and faith. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to treat them right. And therefore, when, when people start moving into my neighborhood and they don't look like me, maybe they're from another country, maybe they're from my own country, but they practice a different lifestyle that I don't agree with, I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to say, well, there goes the neighborhood. I wish everybody was like me again. I'm going to say, thank you, Jesus, for bringing the mission field to my front door. And I'm going to love them because God brought them into my orbit because I know they're going to spend eternity somewhere. And I want to stand in front of Jesus someday and say, I did everything I could to make sure they knew you. And when, 
when we see people on the news on the other side of the world and they're cursing us and they're calling down condemnation on us instead of saying, hey, let's just nuke them all and be done with it. Instead of wishing evil on them, we pray for their souls. We pray that God would raise up Christians among them who will represent Him well and, and show them the love of Christ. We pray for missionaries and we support mission work. We pray for the gospel to spread because that's the answer. And when people mock us, when people ridicule us, our coworkers, our classmates, our neighbors, when we read things on social media that make us angry, we respond with gentleness and respect as we're commanded by the scriptures. We speak the truth in love. We, we correct their false narratives about the gospel, but we do it in a way that says, I don't hate you. I love you. And this is why I'm telling you. This is what is true about Jesus Christ. Now, immediately, I know, some of you are saying, that's not realistic, Jeff. We can't live that way. If we don't stand up for ourselves, if we don't fight back against the, the people who are opposed to us, then we'll get run over. And others are saying, but if I do what you're saying, I'll miss out on some of the enjoyment that other people are experiencing. And to that I say this, at the beginning I quoted Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me read you the passage that comes from. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Make your attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not, equal, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. Let me just pause there and say, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. When God became flesh, and he did it in a way that cast aside all of his rights and privileges, all of his prerogatives. Jesus had every right to come down here and say, I'm the king of this world, give it all to me now. Instead, what did he do? He came as the son of a poor couple. He worked as a carpenter for 30 years. Then he gave his life for our sins. And the beginning of the, of the passage says, make your attitude like his. See, a lot of Christians think, Jesus experienced pain so I could be exempt from pain. Jesus suffered and sacrificed so I could have it all. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, because Jesus did this for you, you should be willing to lay down your life for him. You should be glad to take up your cross and follow him because you know there's something better coming. It goes on and says, he humbled himself, um, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, someday... The king is coming back and he's going to claim his throne this time. And every soul who's ever lived is going to bow before him. And every molecule of creation will sing his praise and will finally be what it was meant to be. And we'll see beauty like we've never seen it before. And that's what we have to look forward to. That's our king. That's our savior. That's the hope that we have. Joy to the world. The Lord has come.